0: This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. I love our movie trailer, Sermon Bumper, um, because it's such a great reminder of this series that we're now in the Upside Down Kingdom. Um, there is a lot of truths in the first shall be last. And we're trying to unpack those and understand those from the book of Matthew. Do you love it when life is uh, kind of stable? And everything's going along and not too many bumps in the road. We all do. And then we have a week like this last week. Yesterday, we had a, a very large memorial service for a very beloved member here at Sunset, Don Motts. I'll miss his hugs. He was an usher, uh, a wonderful man, and uh, went home to be with the Lord just before Christmas Eve day, I believe. And um, so uh, lots of people here uh, celebrating his life. Um, it was a great time. Uh, earlier this week, uh, Perhaps you've seen the video that the Palau Association put out uh, announcing that Luis Palau has stage four lung cancer. And if you were here on uh, December 31st, he preached and he had just gotten uh, the news. It was not public yet, but he alluded to it in his sermon to us. So we've had a chance to. kind of walk with him a bit. And so if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to go on the Plow Association, listen to Luis and his two sons talk about their trust in God for this part of his journey. And then earlier this week, uh, Mike Matusik, Pastor Mike, has not been feeling well, and uh, we were very concerned and uh, thought it was just the flu, Um, but he went in for a number of heart tests. I texted him on Monday and had seen him Sunday afternoon and said, now, if you need me to step in, I'd be happy to do that. And so Monday, knowing what his week was going to look like with some of these heart tests, he said, yeah, it would actually be wonderful to not have to think about writing a sermon this week. And uh, so we got the news about midweek that uh, Mike has had open heart surgery um, and he has a valve that he knew would have to be replaced. They hoped for 15 years out of the valve, they got 10. And so he will have to schedule uh, valve replacement surgery sooner than he had planned sometime in the next one to three months. Um, so, he, you'll, you're still going to see him. He's around. He's uh, going to be here. But we want to pray for him because, while this is not the same kind of news that Luis Palau is facing, uh, it's, it, it's still uh, a kind of a bump in the road, you know. You have to face that, he and his family. So, we need to pray for him, pray for his family, encourage him during this time uh, as he faces the valve replacement surgery. So it's been, you know, life gets tough sometimes, doesn't it? And we struggle. Um, And today we're going to look at what it does mean to really trust God. And we're going to do that from the part in Matthew where Jesus uh, is kind of launching his earthly ministry. If you follow the reading plan, then the reading plan the first couple days is going to walk you through uh, the information chapters between the genealogy, which we looked at, the start of the upside down kingdom. from the genealogy to chapter 4, where we're going to start today, because we have Jesus' birth, and uh, we have the revelation to Joseph and all of that, uh, the escape to Egypt, uh, the return to Nazareth. And today we're going to pick up the story in chapter 4. It's interesting that none of the four Gospels say much about Jesus' childhood or even his young adult years. Fascinating, isn't it? Do you ever wonder why? It's because this is not the biography of Jesus. It is the introduction to the kingdom of which Jesus is the king. So it doesn't allow us to get lost in the details of his childhood. So other than one or two small stories, we are taken from his birth, uh, a king that was born to die, to the launch of his earthly ministry. And just before the passage that we're going to read, today in chapter 4, we're told that Jesus, the real launch of his earthly ministry was to be baptized by John the Baptist, Uh, a thing that John didn't want to do at first because of who he knew Jesus to be, but he uh, is willing to do that, and after Jesus comes up and out of the water, his ministry is launched with these words that come from God, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And this is what launches Jesus' ministry. But Jesus' ministry starts in a very different way. So I love Google. I did some Googling last week in the sermon about how to become a king or queen. This week it was, I thought, you know, it's a little far-fetched. None of us are going to do that. So I wonder what you do to become a CEO. I wonder what you do to, you know, train to be. I wonder what characteristics and qualities people are looking for in great leaders. And I came up with a ton of lists. This was the one I liked the most. It said, to be a CEO, you need to be a risk-taker. I thought that was good. And have an optimistic nature. Uh, the next one was coordination. You need to be able to coordinate and communicate with team members. I thought that was good. Uh, you have to have controlled emotions. In the psychology world, we call this emotional regulation. You have to be able to regulate your own emotions. You need to be able to include others in decision-making. Uh, I've talked with many of you in your workplaces, whether it's Nike or Intel, and man, when something that's really going to impact your work uh, gets, has a decision made about it and you're not included in it, it just feels bad, doesn't it? I thought that was very interesting, inclusion and decision and the ability to trust others. This is a pretty good list. In fact, I would encourage our search team to consider some of these qualities as we look for a new lead pastor of spiritual formation or teaching. I think it's a great list. Very different than the list that I would have pulled up 20 years ago, which, of course, wouldn't have been on the Internet, but, you know, a list that would have been made 20, 30, 40 years ago would have looked very different than this. But times have changed, and this is what leadership looks like. But here's the thing. Very few list of characteristics of great leaders or CEOs leads with learn to be dependent on a strength other than your own. That is not on too many of those lists. And yet that demonstrates the reality of the upside-down kingdom. In fact, I would suggest we put that on the list of characteristics we're looking for in a new lead pastor of spiritual formation. To be dependent on a strength other than your own. So let's go now to Matthew 4 where we learn what this means and what this looks like. Matthew 4 verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. Now folks I'm here to tell you. If you fast 40 days and 40 nights, this is not like, I'm kind of hungry, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch. That's not what this is. This is starvation. Your body is starting to shut down. You've got no reserves. This is not like, I'm kind of hungry. This is, I have to eat or I will die. Okay? Okay. And the tempter, Satan, came to him and said, If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Tell these stones to become bread. Now, I'm here to tell you that I've lived long enough to know that Satan's a deceiver and he can be cunning, but he is not very creative. I'll tell you why. What was the very first temptation? Eat the apple. Eat. Eat. So what Satan did in that very first temptation is he appealed to Adam and Eve's natural hunger for more, for wisdom, for more, for only it was based on the idea that God was holding out on them. And he wasn't going to give them. God would have given it to them. Satan's temptation was Here. You can get it on your own. You don't need God. And so Jesus answers Satan with these words It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how Jesus answers. That's from Deuteronomy 8 3. Jesus knew what Hannah and Jeremiah knew. Two other passages. The story of Hannah is found in First and Second Samuel. Hannah was the mother of, uh, of, Hannah was the mother of Samuel. And so she was hungry for a baby. She hungered, she longed for God to give her a child. Uh, her husband had taken a second wife because she couldn't have children. He loved her, but she couldn't have children. So he took a second wife. And that woman seemed to get pregnant, no problem, baby after baby. Hannah longed for and hungered for a baby. So she prayed and she said to God, if you will give me a child, I will not allow that child to take your place in my life. You will still be first. And so when the baby comes, she writes this beautiful prayer in 2 Samuel uh, 2.5, uh, or 1 Samuel, excuse me, 2.5. She says this, about her hunger for child. She says, those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. Here's what she means. If you take care of your hunger for whatever it is yourself, all you will do is find yourself on the bread line again, over and over again. But if you let yourself be hungry and you let God feed you, You will be hungry no more. There's another verse in Jeremiah. Jeremiah knew this. I remember finding this passage. I I love the book of Jeremiah. I started reading it. It was about 18 years old. I don't know what my problem is, but Jeremiah Lamentations. And I remember coming across this verse, and it just so spoke to my heart and soul. Jeremiah says in 15, Jeremiah 15, 16, when your words came, I ate them. I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. When your words were found, I ate them. I ate them. God invites us to be hungry for more than just what we put in our mouths. For more than what we put in our garages and our houses. For more than what we do on the weekend. But to be hungry for him. For him. You see, what Jesus knew is that later... He himself was going to stand before the people and he was going to say these words. This is John chapter 6, starting with verse 25. It says, When they found him, now Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people, okay? So the crowds are just coming to him. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly. I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're coming to me because you're hungry for food. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? What will you do for us? By the way, this has to do with the second temptation, which we'll get to in a moment. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm what you need. All those other things that you use to satisfy whatever your appetite is for are temporary. Don't pass up what I have to give for those things. I'm the bread of life. Okay, let's look at the... It's kind of like going to Bible school this morning, by the way. You keep your finger in Matthew 4 if you have your Bibles open. I want you to stay there, and then we're going to work our way around it. So Matthew 4, second temptation. Uh, Then verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. And then Satan quotes scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, what does this mean to put God to the test? To test God is to require God to act before we are willing to trust. It's saying to God, prove it, then I'll believe. It's asking us, God, to serve us before we serve him. And I mean, in one sense, of course, he's done that in sending his son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But it's when we demand it, we're testing God. Now, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. Where Moses said, Do not put uh, the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. So, what happened at Massa? Well, to understand that, we have to go back to Exodus 17. And in Exodus 17, it says The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? By the way, it was okay to ask. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're all ready to stone me. And so God gives them the instructions of what to do to hit the rock and to have water gush out of the rock, and God provides for them. So what's wrong with this? Well, you see, what's not said here is that God has already brought them through the Red Sea, and he's provided water, mara, and manna and quail. And when they got through the Red Sea, here's what they sang. They sang, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you've redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The Lord reigns forever and ever. They had praised God for who he is and for what he had provided. And rather than going back to God and saying, God, we believe that you will provide again, we're thirsty. Instead, they struggle to believe without further proof. They demand proof. There's so much just like us. You see, God longs for us to trust Him, not test Him. Interestingly, though, God tests us. Isn't that fascinating? We know this because it says in Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart and whether or not you would keep his commandments, whether or not you would trust him. He humbled you, causing you to hunger. You see, God uses humility and hunger to see if we will choose to meet our own needs and Or demand that he meet our needs our way and in our timeline. Now, don't get confused here. This is not God refusing to meet our need. Because later in the book of Matthew, when he tells us not to worry, he's going to say this. He's going to say, so do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear. For the pagans run after all these things. And look at the last line, your heavenly father knows you need them. This is not God depriving us. This is God training us to be dependent. It's not deprivation. It's about dependence. And in the temptation of Jesus, or the temptation by Satan, God was training Jesus the same way he trains us. Teaching dependence on God's mercy and graciousness. Not testing God to see if he will give us what we want. Thinking that somehow we can move the hand of God. God will do it graciously because he loves us, not because we demand it. Last temptation. Back to Matthew 4. Verse 7 or verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I give you, he said, based on the limited power that God had given him. He is the prince, the power of the air, at least on this earth. He says, all of this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Serve him only. The third third temptation was this. Worship something other than God. Worship something other than God or someone other than God. And so Jesus, again, quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods. The gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God is among you, who is among you, is a jealous God. A jealous God. God says, don't worship other gods. And the Israels were notorious for looking around them and looking at a people and saying, Wow, okay, they're praying to that God. He seems to be answering. Perhaps we should pray to that God as well. And oftentimes they didn't abandon the worship of God. They just added in another God. We don't do that, though, do we? And so God invites us to understand the reality of idols. And so I want to read a passage from Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah kind of nailed this one. In Isaiah 44, he describes the people who are worshiping idols. He says this, This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Well, let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. In other words, can can he talk about the past when he wasn't alive, other than any historical record? And yes, and let him foretell what is to come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know no, I know, not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Let, let, uh, or those who would speak for, for them are blind. They are ignorant to their shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand, and let them be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it with the coals and he shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses strength and he drinks no water and grows faint. In other words, the person who's making these is limited, very limited, does not have all power and yet he's making the God. He shapes it in human form or the carpenter measures out with a line. He makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with the compass. He shapes it into a human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. And then he talks about how they go and they cut down trees in order to make these gods. And it, But he said the trees are used for, as fuel for burning, and some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. And we're thinking to ourselves, that's crazy. We get the fruitlessness of worshiping a piece of wood or stone or any material. To bow down to a man-made object, that's just crazy in our mind, isn't it? We don't do that today. Or do we? Do you get the image on the screens? Do we? Maybe we do worship man-made idols. They're just more slick, more powerful, more godlike than any wooden idol. We hold them in our hands. We type with them all day long. Some of us worship creation more than the creator. Some of us worship people, the created ones. Instead of the creator. We make people powerful in our lives. More powerful than God. So my question. And by the way. I love technology. I don't have a problem with technology. If you stood in line for an Apple phone. I'm okay with that. That's not the issue. But the issue is we need to realize. That's what our culture worships folks. That's what they worship. And sometimes we buy just like the Israelites did. We think, "Oh, that's just ancient people. No, it's not. So my question for you today is, what are you worshiping? Financial security, fact that the stock market's through the roof, the last best health report you got, fact that your family's intact and everything's going well, kids are turning out great. What are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Satan's temptation, I think, reveals our impatience, our lack of understanding of what it means to live in this upside-down kingdom. We want bread. Now, it's natural to be hungry. It really is. I'm single. I live by myself. About 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I think, what do you want for dinner? I don't have to collaborate with anybody. (laughs) I have whatever I want, you know? If are feeding one person, you can stop any restaurant you want, get something on the way home. I mean, you can. You don't have to, you know, or you can go home and fix whatever you want. I can never figure out what I want, though, so I probably most of the time eat the same thing over and over again. But it's natural to be hungry. It's natural to be hungry. We want bread. But do we neglect the bread that will feed our soul? We want to force God's hand to rescue us when we are afraid and it's natural to be afraid. We don't wanna have to trust him through that messy middle or we're waiting for a health report or we're recovering from surgery or we're sitting with a loved one at the end of their life. We We don't like those parts of life. We want God to rescue us. We want purpose and peace and we want all of these now. But in the upside-down kingdom, Jesus is our bread. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our peace and our purpose. The kingdom of the world says, feed yourself. Test God. Don't trust him. Serve something less than God. Find an idol. But the upside-down kingdom says, choose dependence on the word of God as your primary source of nourishment. Yep, you need the food, you need the water. Yep, God delights in abundance. But don't let that, don't think that that is going to nourish the deepest parts of your soul. Go to God's word for that. Choose to trust God rather than test him. And choose dependence on God rather than something less to bring real life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we admit that it is so often, it is so much easier for us to trust ourselves. It's far more immediate. If we have the power to get something, then we'd rather trust that than trust you. So forgive us, Father. Forgive us for all the times that we have not been faithful in this way. And help us embrace the value of dependence in this upside-down kingdom. So often does not make sense to us until afterwards. So, Father, help us to trust you. To trust you with the future. To trust you with our finances. To trust you with a bad health report to trust you when we're facing surgery, to trust you when we're a church in transition. Teach us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. That is who we are to worship. Welcome to the Upside Down Kingdom. And I pray today that you will learn to let him feed you, that you will learn to trust him, not test him, and that you will worship him. Just as we did. Go in peace.